Transferring wealth successfully starts with asking yourself questions that will give your family a better life now and for generations to come. In this podcast, financial professionals John and Michael from Copper Beach Financial Group guide you through eye-opening questions to help you discover the truth about your wealth. Now, on to the show. Hello and welcome to The Truth About Wealth with John and Michael Paris of Copper Beach Financial Group. Today I'm excited. I've been waiting for this guest for months. John has been promising that we're going to get this guest on the show and his name is Tim, but I'm going to hand off to John right now so he can do the full intro. John, good morning. How are you? Morning, Eric. How are you? I'm excited, man. <laughs> I yeah, seriously am. Fun today. Yeah, yeah. All right. Let's let's introduce the guest and, and let's get moving. Uh, that's magical. Tim O'Rourke. Uh, Tim is a dear friend of mine. Uh, we met about nine years ago. Uh, he's a business coach. He's a recruiter. He recruited me to the current broker deal that I, I, I work with. Uh, we became dear friends through the years. He's uh, a lot of fun to be with. And along the way, I realized that he's a wine guy. Uh, we all have wine guys, but uh, Tim and I uh, started to drink wine together about, about 10 years ago. And I went to his house and he has a magnificent wine cellar. Uh, actually, he was on the cover of Wine Spectator a while back for his wine collection. So he's a he's a wine kind of guy. So today, what I want to do with Tim is have a general discussion on the wine business, the, the with the world of wine, however we want to label it. And I'm going to let Tim kind of roll in. So Tim, let's talk about wine today. Hey, John, how you doing? Great, man. Good to be here. Appreciate it. Yeah, Mike's on the other side. So uh, hello, Mike, say hello, everybody. Hey, Mike. And I'm also excited because I, although I haven't, uh, I haven't been drinking wine with Tim as long as you have, Dad. But I've, I've had my fair share, so I'm excited to talk a little bit about this too. Yeah, we're gonna have a little fun today. So, uh, Tim, one of the questions that I always get when I when I share wine with uh, with other folks, other than uh, people that understand wine, is uh, is the the wine it's the wine industry itself. People get confused on regions and the type of wine that you'd be drinking or Whatever, but I'm gonna start from the beginning. How how did you ever get involved with wine? What was your you know, what was your vision for that, and how, how long you've been been collecting wine? Well, I I was going to grad school out in California. I was going to grad uh, grad school at Cal State Fullerton, and my brother Mike was into wine. He was he was actually um, self taught and was teaching classes at one of the local universities and. So when I'd go over to their house for dinner, of course, I was a beer drinking guy back then. Yeah, we all were. Yeah. yeah. So they'd open a bottle of wine with dinner every night and they said, here, try this. No, do you have a bud? You know, no, no, no Budweiser. You know, try this glass of wine. And so I started drinking and it was like, wow, this, this is pretty good stuff. What, what is this? You know, and we, and I think what happens is you, wherever you start, you, somebody introduces you to wine or maybe you get a good glass of wine somewhere out for dinner. And I became just um, kind of like amazed about the whole thing. And we started drinking wine every night with dinner. And and all of a sudden it got to be fun. And next thing I know is I'm starting to read about it and, and starting to do my own research. And I'd take some classes early on. This was in 1976. So I'm dating myself a little, John. I'm, I'm a little bit older than you, but... Uh, 10 months? <laughs> it, it, it's been a fun journey, to say the least. But, but, you know, I, th I think we all find that wine that also, uh, you know, that, that kind of was that moment where you kind of go, wow, what was that? <laughs> it's yeah. like when I introduced you to Barolo. 
Oh, that was a magical day. <laughs> so so anyway, I'm drinking this one bottle Mike opens at, at dinner, and it was like $15 back in 1976, which, you know, arguably was a lot of money. And um, it was a um, it was a California cab, uh, Martha's Vineyard, if you remember that one. Mm-hmm. And it was a 1970 vintage. And I thought that was the best thing I'd ever had in my mouth for wine or any kind of liquid before. And it was like I was hooked. That was all, all I could do. So that's kind of my, that was my uh, genesis of this whole venture that I've got. Yeah, and through the years, as you as you started to uh, develop a, a, a sense of wine, you became a collector. Um, and a lot of folks that I, I work with or speak with, they, they're always ask me questions. What's a good asset class or, or what other ways can I invest my money? And I know that you've been a very successful investor in wine. You want to walk through um, wine as, a, as an investment? Uh, is, is that something that you're, you're uh, always, you, you've always been comfortable with? Yeah. Yeah. It's funny. It's, you know, the short answer is yes, but it's complicated, right? Mm-hmm. Um, unlike owning like company stocks, wine can easily disappear in the glass, you know, <laughs> yeah. or, or a bottle can get broken or, you know, there's all kinds of issues that come into getting into wine as an investment, but it is very lucrative too, at the same time. I think, um, you know, there's some provenance kind of issues of, you know, do you have a wine cellar? Do you, do you maintain proper temperature and, and all these different aspects, but as you get into it, I think, um, the, the, the real basis for starting a collection of, you know, potentially a new hobby is that its investment potential is absolutely incredible, especially when you're dealing with the higher levels of wine, you know, good producers. You look what happened in Bordeaux. I don't know if anybody is familiar with that region in France, but Bordeaux took off about uh, maybe 25 years ago when Parker got in there and started rating wines and and um, he 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 created this whole cottage industry around wine ratings you know and now you've got wine spectator you got parker you got berghound you got suckling i mean there must be 20 different people now or organizations that rate wine and so it's brought a lot of attention to it but in the process um you you, you know it's that magic of wine and food and it's a, it becomes a fun hobby and when you know which wines to buy, John, just like, you know, you're very educated on it now. And, and I think, Mike, you're getting there, too, because you like I think you like Brunello's or certain other, you know, wines from certain yep. wines. You, you get you, you kind of get a, a feel for that region and different producers. And then it just kind of expands. You know, <laughs> you kind of go, wow. Yeah. And the, and the, the average person that buys wine, they, I, I always get the question as well. Do I really need to spend a lot of money on a bottle of wine to get a good bottle of wine? So you want to discuss that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely not. You know, it's I mean, you and I have found some unbelievable wines for twenty dollars. Yes, we have. I mean, and you kind of you kind of swirl the glass and take a sip and go, how much is that? <laughs> that was really twenty dollars. <laughs> yeah. yeah, seriously. Can I get like three cases? Sure. But, yeah, and, and and people always get get uh, confused also about you mentioned regions, uh, Bordeaux being one of them, you know, and a lot of people here um, uh, in the United States, Cab is the is this favorite one or Chardonnay from 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 the West Coast, right? Um, 
when you when you think about California wines and, and the wines here in the United States, there's so many different areas that grow wine. Give me a, a key region in the United States where people grow some really good wine. Well, Napa Valley is the most popular. Okay. And I think that that's where kind of the cab, you know, the, the, the influence of Cabernet Sauvignon. But let me do a quick history on this because okay. it's interesting when you, when you think back to Europe, you know, since the 15th century, they've been growing wine at, you know, at a, at a much higher level than anywhere else in the world that, you know, obviously we weren't even around back then, our country, but it all started pretty much in Bordeaux and the five grapes that were the catalyst, so to speak, was Cabernet Sauvignon, Cab Franc, Merlot, Petit Verdot, and Malbec. And, and everybody might know some of those grapes. Obviously, you know, you can make wine out of 100% Merlot or you can blend it. Uh, Cab Franc's the same way, Petit Verdot, Malbec, Cabernet Sauvignon. But Cabernet Sauvignon came over to America because it's it's got a rootstock that can grow anywhere. I mean, it grows well in Australia, South America, South Africa, you name it. It's kind of like a weed. You just plant that sucker and it's going to do well. <laughs> yeah. But, but that's kind of, that's kind of how it all evolved. And then, so Bordeaux is probably the most famous just because of the historical nature of it. And then you've got Rhone, you've got Burgundy, you got Tuscany, you got Rioja in France and uh, in Spain. So, these oh, are my favorite. major areas I would kind of, you know, draw draw some conclusion out of how it all developed, developed. but Napa was probably at the <clears throat> more the end of the row, you know, of, of getting in line there. But Napa produces some really good, um, some good wines today and, and a wide variety of grapes, too. Yeah, when you when you when you think about buying a bottle of wine and, and cost always becomes a part of the discussion as well. So Cabernet uh, from Napa is kind of pricey because it, it, it carries that big that big stick uh, because of the reputation. Right. Um, when you look at the other uh, areas in, in the world of wine, my guess is, and you and I talked about this over the years, is you could buy some really, really good wine at lower lower prices in different regions of the world. Can you, can you give the audience an idea what regions have a really good uh, quality wine and is priced really reasonable? Well, I would say Rioja, Spain, or Ribera de Duero. Those are two particular wine regions that I like in Spain. You can get some really good value wines. Like one of the producers that I turned you on to years ago was Muga. You remember Muga? I love Muga. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It, Michael, Michael likes no, it Michael great Bo with muscles. Yeah. That's awesome. <laughs> uh, but but Muga is fun because, you know, you can get some really good wines for under $20 a bottle or right around 20 But... The, their their history in in making wine and their style is is so different and and I'll talk about this later you know kind of the steps of making wine and what makes wine so different and 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 the terroir that's involved it it really becomes fascinating that you can get a great bottle of wine and it's totally different than a California Cabernet Sauvignon kind of wine but but these are usually blended uh, regions you know where Rioja blends mainly Tempranillo. But they also blend in other grapes and in, in, into their wines, and they make a very kind of a traditional, but also a new style of of that historical region. You know what I'd call old world wines. It's and and what my palate has migrated to over the years from California, which I still drink and I like, 
but it's migrated into oral. Not so much though, Tim. Come on, let's be honest. <laughs> let's be honest. Well, you know, <laughs> I'm an Italian guy, freak at heart, a French huh? guy, but I get it. I'm, I'm with you. I'm a Barolo freak at heart. Yes, you are. <laughs> Matter of fact, funny story. When I first met Tim uh, at his home, he said, go down to my cellar, pick a bottle of wine out. He said, just, just pick anyone you want. And I went down to his cellar and I saw, and, and I saw this row of Cabernet that was, it was, it was old. It was like unbelievable producers. And I got nervous. I'm going, I can't, I can't pull this wine off the shelf. This is too expensive. So I went upstairs and I said, Tim, I, I don't know which one to pick. He says, pick one. It, it's, it'll, it'll, just don't worry about it. Pick one. So he says, and after we drink that one, I'm going to introduce you to a wine that's going to change your life. And I drank the cab. It was off the charts. It was Lewis, I believe. Was it, Tim? It was one of my favorite. It was, yeah, it was Lewis Reserve, actually. It was Lewis Reserve. It was delicious. And, and then he says, okay, now we're going to get real. And he opened a bottle of Barolo. I think it was an 01. And it was the best wine I think today I've ever had. And I, and he changed my life. So I just wanted to share that story. So there's a, there's an education process and don't be afraid to try different wines, I guess is my message here. Um, I was hooked on the cab from California cause I enjoyed that. But when you start drinking different wines from different regions, your palate changes a little bit and then you settle in the one you really like. And, and, and you just mentioned Spanish. One of my favorite is, is the Spanish wines and, and from Portugal as well they're they're great wines for the price and michael and i drink those wines all the time so there are some good wines you can get from around the world that are inexpensive that you should try and give it a shot um tim let's talk about how do you make wine that the people always really get lost in what's the process and i, I don't want to dig in too much into the weeds but yeah, give us a general idea how wine's made well well first john you know what I find intriguing about wine is, as I did self-education, is that it actually started back around 7,000 BC. I, I didn't realize it went that far back, and it really didn't come become popular until around the 15th century, like I mentioned earlier. But um, you, you know the, the old saying, and when you when you go out and and you you've been out in Italy and different wine regions meeting the the winemakers and and listening to each of their spiels because they all have a different way of each of these different sure. processes, right? So the old the old saying is wine is made in the vineyard because it's about taking care of the vines. It's that meticulous uh, paying attention to every detail, just like in your business, right? I mean, I think why Copper Beach is so successful is that you you pay attention to the details of what you do for your clients. And, and that's the same way in the vineyard. You know, it's, it's that process of really looking after the vines, making sure that they're doing, they're, that they're healthy, that they're, you know, properly maintained and trimmed and, 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 and just getting everything right so that the sun hits the grapes just right. I mean, it, it's really wow. quite fascinating when you get into the details, just like your business, but so the five areas that actually make it uh, making wine is is actually in the vineyard and then the harvest, obviously. And most vineyards are hand-picked. So they have workers go out. And and I did this a couple times in my trips around. Yeah, I remember the, you telling me. Yeah. yeah. I'd get out there with that sickle thing and, you know, I'd get that bite <laughs> cut my finger off. Tim and, the farmer. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> farmer Tim, you know. Uh, so anyway, you got the harvest process. And then after you harvest it, you've got to get the grapes crushed really quickly so because it's a live you know uh, it's it's a live grape it's still you know in, in that condition and the grapes have a natural fermentation or not i'm sorry a natural yeast over the top and so when they crush it you've got about six to twelve hours to get it into that fermentation process which is 
you know, you got to be quick. And so uh, there's different ways of crushing the grapes. There's all kinds of different theories. I think we saw a number of them when we were in uh, Piedmont that they use a baffle as an example. Yeah. So they slowly compress it. They don't like hammer it. And you see the old kind of, uh, of, uh, of the actual crushing of the grapes when Lucille Ball was walking around with her feet, lifting her skirt up, you know, la, 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 la. <laughs> Um, so, so there's different theories of how you crush the grapes and then you get it in the fermentation process. And usually that, that can last anywhere from a few days to a whole month of fermenting the wine, uh, depending on who the winemaker is, what, where the grapes are from and, and what they want to do with it. And so as, as you go through that fermentation process, uh, after the crushing, they also add specific strains of yeast into the, the grape juice. And then that sugar is fermented into alcohol. So that's really where winemaking takes place right there. And after that happens, you um, uh, the winemaker will filter the wine, go through a, what they call a clarification process. And there's different ways to filter it. Back to Muga as an example. They'll 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 do a, a broad filter, just take out of the grape skins and seeds and stems and that kind of thing. But what they'll do is they'll take egg whites yeah, and whip them up and pour them in on the top of the vat so that the egg whites sift down and and take out all the small particles. I mean that that's been done there for hundreds and hundreds of years. And then um, once the wine is fined, what they call fined. Then, then the last stage, obviously, is the aging process, which also has a lot of interesting nuances like uh, oak barrels. You know, um, it could be new oak. It could be old oak. It could be small oak barrels. It could be Slovakian oak. I mean, we saw some in, in Piedmont. Remember those huge barrels? That, yeah, enormous. Yeah. Uh, uh, what was it at? Um, uh, where was the winery? Marquita, Marquita Barolo. Remember that when yeah, we walked yep, in there? Yep, that's where Those it was. things were like 5,000, 10,000 liter barrels, and they've been used for probably 30, 40, 50 years. And so they impart no flavor into the wine. They just wanted something for the wine to sit and age in. So, so there's all kinds of different processes. And then, then once you get it out of oak, then they put it in bottle storage. And then there's requirements by different areas about how long, like in Barolo, you have to keep it in the bottle for three years. If it's a reserve, it has to be four years. And then there's all kinds of nuances like, you know, like we talked about is, does the hill where they grow the vines face southern or northern? If it face southern, it's more, it's, it's a premium uh, land. And, and so... You, it gets better light exposure to the sun, and it's better for um, for the ripening process of the grapes. You know, it, it it's like anything else, just like your business. It's complicated. Yeah, when you when you look at that process of of that aging or the or growth uh, as well, um, weather becomes. I know we talked to remember we talked to Giorgio about um, from La Spanada about the risk of growing wine, and on any given day, I think in Piedmont region, they were their biggest fear is uh, hail storms in August. And one or two days worth of hail can destroy a crop pretty quickly. And, and it boils down to, it's mother nature that makes wine successful, not necessarily the producer. <laughs> mother nature's a lot to do with it. And, and I remember uh, when we were there with my older brother, Mario, um, we were talking about 
aging one and how long you can age it, like 30 years, 40 years. And, and my brother asked Giorgio a question. He said, I mean, people have one for 40 years. Why do they do that? And, and is it make it better? And he turned to Mara and he says, are you familiar with Gina Lillibridgina? <laughs> my brother said, sure. <laughs> he said, when, when she was 40, she was, she was magnificent. When she's 80, she's still spectacular. But what he was trying to get across is at 40, you can still drink it. 80 is still good, but uh, you run the risk of it not being uh, a drinkable wine. But anyway, it was an interesting uh, understanding how wine ages and how it grows and how Mother Nature takes, takes effect. Tim, the other question we get from, from people all the time is, is how do you store wine? Because I, I, I people always say, well, do I leave it in my garage? Do I leave it on my refrigerator? Do I leave it under my bed? I've seen people have wine everywhere. What's the best way to store wine? Well, obviously you want to keep it on, under about 70 degrees is optimal. Uh, the, the best temperature for me anyway, for my cellar, I keep it around 55, 56 degrees. But you, you don't want any light on the on the wine. So you, you want to block it from any natural light, sunlight, that kind of thing. Um, you also want to keep the temperature consistent. Uh, as much as you can. And humidity is to preserve the cork when they say, you know, the humidity should be a little higher. You want humidity not too high, but enough to keep the cork moist. And, and so it doesn't rot and fall apart. So if you do all these things correctly, you keep the temperature right. Wine can store for 30, 40, 50 years. And, and the more sugar in the wine, so let's, let's talk about wines like our from Sauterne, which is a Batriatus kind of uh, region in in France near Bordeaux. Um, what they do is it's called noble rot. They pick grapes that are basically got mold on them, and they look like you know let's throw those away. <laughs> they can't be any good, <laughs> but they make the most incredible wines that are sweet. And those wines I've got I still got some um, sixty one Yakim in my cellar, John that. That would blow your mind. It, it looks like a golden amber, but this is a this is a particular producer. What's at uh, uh, almost sixty years old? This wine is amazing. So the now, more that's a dessert wine, right, Tim? That's what you refer to that wine. I'm sorry. That's a dessert wine, correct? That's correct. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It goes great with foie if you like foie gras. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> uh, let's get with with uh, pouring wine. Uh, when I when I when I pour wine and I I decan it. Uh, people say, why, why do you do that? Like, why do you sniff the glass? Why do you decant the wine? What, what, why do you go through that process? Why don't you just cork it, open the cork and drink it? So you want to walk, want to walk everyone through what the process is on how to serve and maybe drink wine on a daily basis. So, John, how many grapes do you think are in a bottle of wine? Uh, I, I wouldn't know. Well, let's look at it this way. Let's say there's a million grapes inside that bottle of wine that are just screaming for oxygen. They want to breathe. <laughs> so, so what happens is they've been locked up in that bottle for 10 years, 15 years, whatever. And all of a sudden you pop the cork and it's like air is getting to it and it's opening up. It's, it's, going, to, um, it, it, it's, it's going to breathe basically. And then all of a sudden, all of its qualities come out. My rule of thumb is decant every wine. I even decant champagne. Yeah, we talked about that the last week, actually. Yeah. You know what? Remember what's your favorite champagne? Uh, Krug Rose. Oh. <laughs> it's life changing. <laughs> Isn't that funny how you remember things like that? Uh, yes. 
but but anyway, that so decanting is such an important process that we all should pay attention to. So any wine you open up, decant at least 20 to 30 minutes. Just get something, a vessel to pull in, get a professional decanter, and, and they're inexpensive. You can get them anywhere. But it, it's important to, to let that wine out of the bottle and just get some air in it. And, and that's why we when you when you drink wine, you pour it in your glass and you swirl it around a little bit. You, you're wanting it to get more air and open up. Some wines could take a whole day sitting open. I mean, just because they're so tight is what they call it. so tight, so wound tight. Um, other wines you can open in 30 minutes, 40 minutes, an hour type of thing. Yeah, I know that um, my my practice with Cab is let it breathe for an hour and a half because Cab is a very strong, strong grape. And and it's such a difference when you open that wine and let it sit for an hour and then drink it. And and, and I, what I learned through the years is, is you ever go to a local restaurant that you know really well and you're going to have dinner plans, let's say, let's say it's 7 o'clock, and you know what wine you want to have. You would, you would call ahead, uh, order the wine, and have them open it. So when you sit down for dinner, the wine's already opened and it has all the power that you're looking for when you open that wine. So that's a practice I've learned a long time ago. It's hard to do, but, but if, you can, if you get a chance to do that with a good restaurant, you know, it's a, it's a, great, it's a great way to you know, drink wine properly. Well, um, you know, the, the other thing I, I like to do, as you know, is bring a bottle of wine out to dinner with me because I've got a, a large cellar and I'd rather drink my wine that I know the provenance of it. I know that it's been kept, you know, correctly and, and also it's aged because anytime you go out, there's exceptions. You can get good wine less at some of the better restaurants, but uh, I would I would challenge any restaurant to have a better wine than what I could bring a lot of times. And so most restaurants charge a quirky Cork, treat, yeah. right? And and that's fun to do because you you can buy a bottle of wine there at the restaurant and also bring your own sometimes just to kind of uh, enhance the meal. Tim, let's be honest. You never bring one bottle of wine. <laughs> really? <laughs> it shows you three or four and i'll tell and i'll tell you why because you share with everybody and we usually when we go out we have a, a, a decent group of people and tim's always been so generous with some very very quality quality wine and share because he wants to teach everybody you know the quality of wines that are in the world and he he does share his collection that that's what makes tim very special and i have i don't think we've ever had a bad bottle of wine together i don't think we ever ever had that um one of the things hey, that, hey, tim. that yeah, Michael. Well, that was a the question I had because I've I've known a couple people at th through my years of drinking wine, if you will, that that are, are call themselves collectors, but they're very hesitant to open up a part of their collection uh, and share it with with others. Which I think it, to to expand upon what you said, Dad, I think that's one of your uh, best qualities, Tim. Is I think you're you're very willing to share your wine with others. But I'm interested. How do you how do you give advice if someone is trying to collect wine, what they should keep, what they should open, um, what what are the, not parameters, but explain a little bit how, what your thought process is around how you decide that, what you're going to open and what you're going to keep. Um, it's, it, it's, it's around the people that you're with, because if you think about wine, you know, we've talked about it also as an investment, right? I mean, it, it's, it's a, it's a wonderful investment. It's a liquid investment. I mean, that's one of the qualifications <laughs> that makes it nice. Um, but what I like about it is sharing it with other people that that it it forms bonds. It it, it helps. To, um, I think you know create a giving kind of atmosphere because you're sharing something 
that you've spent time researching and, and storing and aging, and then to share it with, with friends and family and business acquaintances, associates. I, I think it just opens up a whole new world of, of, of transitioning, you know, a relationship that you have. Uh, and then, the, then you've got food involved and, and it becomes a fun kind of, uh, of thing that you all share. So my, my focus is on sharing wines that match where we're going. So if we're going to eat in an Italian place. You know what I'm likely to bring. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> if, if we're going out to, um, let's say a Thai restaurant, I might bring a Riesling from um, from Germany, or I might bring something from the Alsace region, and and so I try to kind of match where we're going and what kind of food. And John was joking, you know, I usually bring like four or five, even six bottles of wine, some out to dinner, so I have a choice because you know I don't know what everybody's going to ask. So I kind of focus around what people like, and and I know that like John would. And you would like a, a Brunello or a Barolo. I might bring one each of those, and I might bring a white. Like one of my favorites is white Burgundy. Um, yes, yep. indeed. There's a duh wine, you know. Yeah. So do my daughters, Tim. Thanks very much for that. I appreciate it. <laughs> yeah, I figured that cost you a couple extra grand a year. <laughs> <laughs> Not quite that much, but my girls uh, got accustomed to drinking the, a very good white white Burgundy, which is Malt Rocher, which is off the charts. Very, very great. It's a great wine, and uh, my girls got spoiled. But it, and, and that brings me to another question. A lot of people can't tell the difference of a good bottle of wine and a bad bottle of wine. Not bad, but a lesser quality bottle of wine. They always say, I can't taste the difference. Why is that? And is that, is that just because they don't have a palate yet for a good bottle of wine? What do you, what do you find in your experience? Well, John, it's like your philosophy. I think you got to drink more, right? Yeah. So, <laughs> Absolutely. Yep. so I think that's you usually the solution drink. to all problems. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I mean, you gotta, seriously, I, you know, I drink between 30 to 60 wines a week and, and I don't drink the whole bottle. I, I, I taste different wines, you know, and there's different ways of doing that with groups, and so I go out on wine tastings. Lastly, that uh, lately that's been a little crimped in my style because I'm stuck at home right now. But, but um, you know, it's it, it's it, it's just experimenting and trying different wines, and and then the more you get exposed, so I'm always open to try any wine from any region. I'm not a big fan of South Africa. They're good. They're just not my style. And, and then I've tried everything from every wine region in the world you can possibly name. I even make wines in every every um, state in the United States now. Even even Hawaii makes wine. So so it's it's just a matter of getting out there and trying different wines and see what you like. And then you kind of um, zero in on what you like. And then having somebody like you, John, or Michael, um, you know, help people kind of pick out if you, if you like a particular wine, why don't you try this one? Or, you know, here's one and, and maybe you share it. You know, a lot of times I'll give a bottle of wine or two away just to people, just to try stuff. And they kind of come back and go, wow, that was really good. <laughs> Do you have any more? <laughs> yeah, and, and that, that brings to another point. And, and you have a wine club, which is great. There's a bunch of guys that get together, I think once a month, right, Tim, where you share, where you share wines from your sellers. And what's interesting about it, I've been to, to a few of them, What's interesting, the camaraderie amongst the, the the wine folks in that group, they're all sharing type of people, and boy, they bring some really good wine. 
I'll tell you, and I feel guilty when I show up in Atlanta to meet with Tim. They always invite me, and I don't bring wine because I, I, didn't know, I didn't know I'm going to be invited. But they're so willing to share with me that I got to know a few of the guys. And I went the last one about, about a month ago, Tim, a month and a half ago. Right. Yeah. And, and it, we had some of the most outstanding wine that I've had, probably the best wine I ever tasted. So sometimes you could bring people together uh, for, for just friendship and, and try different wines. So maybe try that with your community. If, if you f- find people like wine, maybe you form a little club and, and share. That's how you learn how to share different types of wines. And everyone's held to bring a special wine that they found or, or they bought and share it with everybody. So it's, it's, it's a good way to share different wines. Uh, yeah. Tim, I know we're running out of time. Um, one of the things I want to share with the audience Tim is such a resource for for me, not only as a wine specialist, but also as a friend. He agreed to do ongoing podcasts in the future on different regions that have a very special wine to those regions. So we're going to be doing future podcasts with Tim on, let's say, the Italian region and really dig deep or dive deep into what makes some of the Italian wines uh, some of the best wines in the world or or Chile or California. And so we're going to dig deep in the region. So I'm looking forward to doing that with you, Tim. And I just want to make sure that uh, we got that out there. Mike, do you have any other thoughts with Tim or, or uh, any, other, any other questions before we, we end, end our show today? No, this has been great. It's always great to talk to, to you, Tim. And I'm really excited to dig a little deeper into some of those regions on future podcasts. Yeah, that'll be fun. It, it, it opens your eyes when you really understand that there's there's actually 5,000 different grapes out there in the world. Ouch, I know. You know, and how many do you know? Take a guess. How many pro- grapes? Pro- you know? Probably me, about 15, maybe. Yeah, I would <laughs> exactly. say 10, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's mind-expanding because you go to these different regions. What's fun is try the stuff that is indigenous to that area. You know, try try some wines that are grown and, and not really – exported to the United States and you might try them in, in Spain and Italy, South Africa, wherever. And, uh, you really get to experience kind of, you know, a whole different wine completely that you've ever had. And it's, it's a fun education process and to share it with others. And I'll tell you, we had our trip to Piedmont region a couple of years ago, and it was seven days tasting wine for some of the top producers. We, we did, I think we did nine producers. It was probably the best seven days I've spent doing anything it, it was i met some of the nicest people in, in northern italy we i think we we didn't stop laughing for, for nine days it tell, tell like, a mario story real quick no i'm not gonna tell no, no more stories about mario <laughs> <laughs> anyway uh anyway so tim i wanted to thank you for your for your time today and and for anybody that's interested if you're not a subscriber um i would just i would just subscribe and maybe uh anticipate some some good sessions with tim along the way here and uh so you're updated uh, and you're notified when uh, when he's available to, to be on a podcast. Uh, Eric, I'm going to turn it over to you. Guys, this was fantastic. I, <laughs> you, you, you're going to hear from the heathen now because uh, when you said, how many grapes do you know? I thought, I know two, green ones and purple ones. So, <clears throat> yeah, I... Uh, I, I'm on the, the bottom of this food chain here for learning, so I'm really looking forward to the future podcasts and, and what you're going to be bringing to the table, literally. And uh, I'm hoping that maybe one of these days when everything kind of calms down that you guys are going to be doing this podcast in person and we're going to hear a, a cork pop, right, as we do the podcast. I would love to, to, to hear you guys actually 
you know, pouring that wine and enjoying it together as you talk. So no, we'll look you forward just to want that. to drink some of it. I know. Well, if I can come it along, heck yeah, I got to learn <laughs> some things, right? <laughs> I'm, I'm ready to be taught. <laughs> so guys, thank you so much. This is a great podcast, Tim. Thank you so much for being a great guest. And I look forward to the future podcasts that are going to be coming out. And to you, the listening audience, I want to thank you for listening to the Truth About Wealth podcast with John and Michael Paris. If you have not subscribed to the podcast yet, please click the subscribe now button below. This way, when John and Michael come out with a new podcast, it'll show up directly on your listening device. This makes it much easier to share these podcasts with your friends and family. Again, thanks so much for listening today. For everyone at Copper Beach Financial Group, this is Eric Johnson reminding you to live your best day every day. And we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to the Truth About Wealth podcast. Click the subscribe button below to be notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guest and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Copper Beach Financial Group. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning. This material is for informational purposes only. Neither APFS nor its representatives provide tax, legal, or accounting advice. Please consult your own tax, legal, or accounting professional before making any decisions. Securities offered through American Portfolio Financial Services Incorporated, a member of FINRA SIPC Investment Advisory and Financial Planning Services offered through American Portfolio Advisors Incorporated, an SEC registered investment advisor. Copper Beach is an unaffiliated entity of APFS and APA. Any opinions expressed in this forum are not the opinion or view of American Portfolios Financial Services Incorporated APFS or American Portfolios Advisors Incorporated APA and have not been reviewed by the firm for completeness or accuracy. These opinions are subject to change at any time without notice. Any comments or postings are provided for informational purposes only and do not constitute an offer or a recommendation to buy or sell securities or other financial instruments. Readers should conduct their own review and exercise judgment prior to investing. Investments are not guaranteed, involve risk, and may result in a loss of principal. Past performance does not guarantee future results. Investments are not suitable for all types of investors.